Uh, so we continue our series on what is a healthy church, um, but we are shifting away from the church in Jerusalem, from Acts 1 through 5, to now the pastoral epistles. The past, pastoral epistles are the letters that Apostle Paul wrote to two of his, of his understudies, Timothy and Titus. These letters were sent as instructions so that these two young pastors would know how to lead their church. They're young, it's probably their first church, and so they're kind of wet behind the ear. And this morning, we begin looking at 1 Timothy, and we're not going to get very far. In fact, I'm just going to do a quick survey, quick survey of some of the key themes and the purpose found in 1 Timothy. I'm going to spend most of our time today looking at how the church that Timothy pastors, how it actually got started. So I thought it'd be really helpful if we would just take a look at these people who Timothy is actually ministering to, and I think the content and themes that we'll see in First and Second Timothy will make a little more sense if we do the background work and look at these individuals who Timothy is actually shepherding. So let's read the first seven verses of First Timothy chapter 1, and then we'll look back to see how this church got its miraculous start. So let me um, pause and pray for us this morning. Uh, Father God, you are mighty. You are worthy of all of our praise. And Lord, this morning, we desire to know you better. We desire to be a pleasing church, one that wants to honor you. Lord, we want your son to have a pure and spotless bride. So Lord, please teach us how we ought to behave as his bride. And then give us the grace to live out those same ways. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this church that Paul sent Timothy to, uh, to pastor, it is not a healthy church. You know, I, I, w- I think we're a healthy church. This church that Timothy inherits is not a healthy church. Uh, if this church would come up, Um, most pastors would not send the reference to this church. It is not healthy. Um, There's a lot of turmoil going on. And as we'll see in the first chapter, this church contains some false teachers. And so Paul sends Timothy to pastor to lead this church where there's already these false teachers who are older than Timothy, and Timothy's got to bring this congregation to order. Um. Paul gives his purpose to Timothy in what we would call chapter 3. Paul states in chapter 3, verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So why is Paul writing? He says, I am writing these things to you, writing directly to Timothy, indirectly to us. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, this shows that at some point Paul wants to come back to Ephesus. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So Paul is writing so that the church will know how to be the church. Most of us understand what a pillar, um, what a pillar is. But a buttress might not be as familiar. 
pillar and buttress, they're, they're both building materials that are used to bring support to some type of structure. So with this truth in mind, now, now let's read the first seven verses in chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, designed to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So in a few weeks, we're going to come back to those verses and take a deeper look into those. Um, But for this morning, I just want us to see a glimpse of what Timothy is sent to do. Timothy, this young pastor, we know that from chapter 4, is sent to Ephesus to bring a charge against these individuals who are teaching a different doctrine, to those who are devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So we see that false teaching, it was a major problem in this church at Ephesus. But how did they get there? Well, to be fair, think about it. There's no such thing as a Christian culture for them to learn from in this church. Um, There's no church planning conferences to go to. There's no non-marks of a healthy church resource. I mean, at this point in church history, the New Testament is still being penned. So the Ephesian church couldn't even read the pastoral epistles to know how a church ought to behave. Everything is new. Remember, the church in Jerusalem exploded in chapters 1 through 5. We saw thousands of people coming to know Christ as Savior. In chapter 6, if we were to keep reading, we see persecution coming into the church. Persecution comes with the hopes of stopping the church, but persecution only helped grow the church. When persecution came in, in Jerusalem, most of the Christians left. They split. They got out of town. But they took their new faith and the gospel with them to these new cities. So all these Gentile cities, they began to see these local congregations becoming established. Ephesus was one of those cities. So Christians were coming to Ephesus as a major city. Um, And in Acts 19, Paul pays a visit to Ephesus. And God uses his time there in a powerful way. So let's just flip back to Acts 19, or scroll back, or select, I don't know, whatever device you're using. Let's look at how this church gets its start so we can see maybe some of the background to who Timothy is actually ministering to when Paul's writing this letter to him um, that we would call 1 Timothy. So Acts 19, verse 1 says, "And And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? 
And they said, no, we have, not received, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. When hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid, laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So we've seen this pattern. That was in Acts 2. We see it a couple times throughout Acts. And this just shows you how these churches were being established outside of the Christian culture. They say they have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So everything's new. Keep that in mind. There's not a church on every corner in Ephesus at this point. Okay, They wouldn't even use that language. Like when we say there's a church on every corner, usually we're talking about what? We're talking about a building, a structure. That, the idea of a church being a building doesn't even, it's not even here for them, okay? So this is all new. Verse 8, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, Asia's massive. So to say the residents of Asia, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, it's astounding. Now, obviously, this could be hyperbole. But either way, it's quite remarkable. God was using Paul in incredible ways. And let's just keep reading. We'll see more. Look down at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Paul was the hospital. It's all you need. It was just Paul. You're sick, go see Paul, or just bring something back from Paul. This is amazing. We saw something similar in Acts 5. Remember where people were bringing the sick out to Peter, hoping that even his shadow would just cast upon them? And now it's Paul's turn for God to show off his power. And I would just remind you our rule from last week. Uh, when you're reading a narrative, which is what Acts is, we have to keep in mind that narrative is not normative. That is, that this is describing what is happening, not prescribing what will or should happen. Um, so, sadly, there's a lot of false teachers, shady men, charlatans, that will take advantage of well-meaning Christians by using this verse. There are televangelists who will tell people, if they send me your money, then we will send you an a, anointed prayer cloth. And it's based off this verse that we will, you'll get this prayer cloth in the mail, and if you're sick, then you'll be healed. You can even find these on Amazon or even Etsy. People are just making money off you know, well-meaning Christians. The idea behind the prayer cloth is that somehow we have figured out how God works, that the miracles of God can be boiled down to some type of formula, A plus B equals C. Some holy man plus a handkerchief touched by said holy man equals miraculous power healings. But what's missing from that equation? 
God. If God isn't in it, then there is no power. The passage says that God was using Paul in a miraculous way. So these prayer calls, they're nothing more than hocus pocus. It's all a sham, in my opinion. So people in Ephesus were being healed from diseases and from evil spirits, which then brings us to our next section in Acts 19. This is kind of a strange passage. Verse 13, we see a different type of power here. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. These Jewish exorcists, they were best known for offering like these strange Hebrew incantations. As we will see, the Ephesians were drawn towards like sorcery, witchcraft. They were they loved idols. They were polytheistic. They would worship anything that would provide a cure or a blessing for a price. It was common for charlatans like these guys to borrow names like they do here with Jesus for their incantations. So Apparently, they've maybe observed Paul for a while doing this, using Christ's name. And so after watching that, this particular group of pretenders decide to cash in on Jesus' name, but their attempt backfired greatly. These seven sons of Sceva attempted to use Jesus' name, just like Paul, but the evil spirit replies, I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, But who in the world are you guys? And then the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Listen, anytime you lose a fight, it's a bad day. But when you lose a fight... And you and your brothers end up running out naked. It's a really bad day. But notice how the dominance of this evil spirit didn't draw attention to the evil spirit. What did it do here? It drew attention to Jesus. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all. You would think fear of the evil spirit and They would pay attention to that, but then it says, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Here we're reminded that Satan cannot stop the church, cannot stop God, God moving. Verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together And burned them in sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. 
So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is what true confession and repentance looks like. Luke says believers were confessing and divulging or making known their practices, showing us that it's possible to be a believer and still have sin in your life. And it seems like some of them realized maybe for the first time that faith in Jesus and participation of magic and the occult were incompatible. Two don't go together. It's like they, this is, there's no Christian culture, so they didn't grow up in church or knew a little bit about church. They didn't you know, leave the faith and now coming back. Everything is new. So they came to know Christ, but at the same time did not realize practicing magic was incompatible with the gospel until this moment. And you will see um, this type of behavior in new believers all the time, uh, especially if they've not been around church culture. Now, oftentimes, new believers don't know what it looks like to live a Christian life. But a true believer, when they are shown from God, from his word, that some practice that they're doing is wrong, then they will confess and repent just like these believers do in Ephesus. So how do we know they repent, though? They confess, but how do we know they repent? Repentance shows action. Confession of words, repentance, action. We see repentance because they're burning these books. And notice, you know, they were expensive, 50,000 pieces of silver. They didn't try to give the books away or sell the books. To try to, you know, that's a lot of money. I, I, I shouldn't do it, but maybe I can get something back from this. They didn't do any of that. They knew that if it was, these books were bad for them, they didn't want anyone else to have them either. So even though by burning them, they would lose a lot of money. Burning them shows repentance. This is the putting off the old self that Paul writes to the Ephesians church in Ephesians 4. He knows this church is new. It's rough. Um, and so there's this putting off the old self, being renewed in the spirit of your mind, putting on the new self created after likeness of God, Ephesians 4 tells us. And this is what sanctification looks like. I think that's what putting off, putting on is talking about. It's talking about sanctification. Sanctification is the process. So justification happens in a moment. It's when you're made right. Sanctification is, it, it is a now. It's now and then there's a not yet. It's a process. So God's making you more like him. And I think God expects all believers to confess and repent no matter how old or young you are in the faith. So a lot of these same believers who are burning these books are going to be a part of this church that Timothy has sent to pastor. So this is the congregation that Timothy is preaching to. They have a background of practicing magic, sorcery. These young Christians show us an important characteristic or trait of a healthy church. A healthy church is one who cares more about honoring Christ more than their own personal gain. And we're going to see a contrast now in this passage, in this next section, of how the world cares more about their personal gain than you do about honoring Christ. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying money is evil. It is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. And guess what New Testament book that verse actually comes from? First Timothy. 
So the love of money, it's an issue for this church at Ephesus. Some commentaries say that these 50,000 pieces of silver could be as much as hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so they're burning that money that they could be, you know, getting back that they had spent for these books. They burned them all because honoring Christ was more important than getting some money for these books. So now let's read the contrast from what a healthy church, where they're burning these books. It's more about honoring Christ than personal gain. Now let's look at what it looks like for personal gain in verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Okay, if we're going to understand the Ephesians, then we have to understand who Artemis is. This would be like trying to figure out who Huntington is without ever visiting Marshall or finding anything out about Marshall. Or maybe visiting Point Pleasant. If you're not from around here, Point Pleasant is just right up Route 2, just a little north of us. It's like visiting North uh, Point Pleasant without ever trying to find out who the Mothman is, okay? If you're going to be from around Point Pleasant, you got to know who the Mothman is. The Temple of Artemis was the hub of Ephesians' economic life. You would come to the Temple of Artemis. You would make deposits, take out a loan. It was kind of like a bank. It's a place of worship as well. Not only was it the main financial institution in Asia, it was also an impressive, massive, brilliantly you know, made, constructed building. Today, it's one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. This is what people think it used to look like. Today, it doesn't look like that. There's um, remains of it today. But Artemis was this Greek god. It was, she was um, um, Artemis in Greek mythology. In Roman mythology, her name was Diana. Her worshipers believed her image had fallen from heaven and was housed inside her temple. She was the goddess of nature who was believed to protect and preserve. She was known as the fertility god. So if you had trouble getting pregnant, you would make sacrifices to Artemis. Or if your crops were barren, then you could ask Artemis to bring life to your crops. But now Paul, Paul's walking around Ephesus, preaching a message about a crucified and risen Savior with a far more power than Artemis could claim. Some um, Ephesians, we've seen that they've exchanged their idols of Artemis for worship of this living Christ. But others, like Demetrius, they, they were furious by what Paul was preaching. Verse 25, these he, um, Demetrius, gathered together with their workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with our hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come to, into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis 
may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So because of of Paul's preaching, people were coming to trust Jesus as their living Savior, which means that they had no more need of worshiping Artemis, which means they had no more need of buying idols made in the image of Artemis. Enter Demetrius. This is how he fits into our story. Demetrius, a silversmith, made these little silver shrines of Artemis. This was his livelihood. And now because of this great revival happening all throughout Asia, as we see in verse 24, is bringing no business to the craftsman. It's hitting him in his pocket. See, Demetrius sounds like he actually cares about Artemis, but all he actually cares about is protecting his own God. Demetrius worshipped money, wealth, maybe comfort, security. Demetrius is driven by greed, not by his love for the goddess. He's driven by dollars, not by doctrine. And there are many today who may never bow down to a little statue, but will bow down to the god of money. You don't have idols in your homes, but you have plenty of idols in your hearts. What, what, what idols do you bow down to? One of the easiest ways to find out who or what you worship or what you bow down to is simply to follow your emotions. Emotions are a gateway to your heart. What made you anxious this week? Why did you get angry? Why are you depressed? Why are you so jealous? When you feel or see these sinful emotions, take note because they're telling you what or who you worship. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. Demetrius, he's, he's angered by Paul because Paul's preaching, um, it, Paul's preaching is interfering with Demetrius' God. It is costing him his wealth, and he won't stand for it. And now we see how it's impacting others as well. Look at verse 28. And when they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and um, Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in the, uh, among the crowd, the disciples uh, would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, but, and, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd... He said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know the, the, the city of the Ephesians as temple keeper of great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Now, that's an interesting phrase. Uh, the sacred stone could be a reference to like a meteorite which fell from the sky, which might explain how Artemis got from heaven to earth. We don't know for, for sure, but this seems likely possibility um, of that reference. Verse 36, seeing then that 
These things cannot be denied. You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with, with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled, settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being in charge with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So this is the origin of the Ephesian church we see here in Acts 19. And this is some of the background to which Paul is writing to Timothy. So Paul knows these people. Um, many of them were saved because of his preaching. He deeply cares about them. He loves them. And now he is troubled because some false teachers have come into leadership and they're causing great harm to the church. So Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus to bring a charge to these false teachers. Healthy leadership is so important for a church. If your church doesn't have healthy leadership, it is not going to be a healthy church. You can be a, a healthy church, insert bad leadership, and it won't be too long before you are no longer a healthy church. So Paul knows he has to fix this. And Paul sends Timothy to bring good teaching, right doctrine into the church. Paul speaks much on the family, the roles of men and women in the home and in the church, a topic desperately needed for us today. Ultimately, Paul wanted Timothy to preach a true gospel to the Ephesian people. I think we see Paul's heart in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when he writes, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God. So think of his audience. He's saying there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. See, Paul knew that Artemis could never offer the people of Ephesus what Jesus could offer them. When Paul writes that there's one God, yeah, maybe he's talking about, you know, he's, he's opposing the idea that Artemis, or maybe he's talking about that, you know, all the other gods that humanity would typically worship. So we worship a lot of gods. You might not call yourself polytheistic, but functionally, many of us are. We all have gods like family. Do you realize that? That your family can become an idol? Especially our children. And if you don't believe that children can be something you worship, just attend any youth sporting event this week as Exhibit A. You will see a lot, a, a lot of worship. Our gods are things like money, fame, Sex, power, control, convenience, comfort, approval of others. We could list a thousand other gods that we probably have bowed our, our knee to at some point. None of those gods will ever satisfy. None of those gods will ever bring you comfort. None of those gods can mediate between you and a holy God. None of those gods can be a ransom for you. Why do we need a ransom? 
A ransom is a sum of money or other payment demanded or paid for the release of a prisoner. See, you are that prisoner. You're either a prisoner to your own sin. Everyone has a master. Your master is either sin, who will deceive you to think that your master is yourself, but you're wrong. Sin has been your master this entire time. Or your master is Christ, and he has control of your life. If Christ is your master, if you have surrendered, if you have confessed your sin and made Jesus your Savior, then this morning we invite you to take part of something that we call the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a tangible reminder of the ransom that was paid um, on our behalf. See, we need a ransom because we were sinners. We had a debt that we couldn't pay. So Christ became that ransom. He became that debt for us. And so Jesus, when he was with his disciples on earth, he told them that he was leaving. He said, I've got to go. I've got to go to the cross. Um, My blood's got to be shed for the forgiveness of your sin. So Christ dies in our place so that we can be forgiven. He says that his body is broken so that we can see um, what he went through. And so this morning, if you are a follower of Christ, we invite you to, to take of the Lord's Supper. So for us, you don't have to be a member of our church. Just if you are a Christian this morning, you come to either station. There'll be people there with, with, uh, with two plates. One will have some bread. Just take a piece of bread, which represents the body of Christ. The other is a cup, and that represents uh, the juice that's in it, represents the blood of Christ that was shed for forgiveness of sin. So as you take this, reflect on the reason you're taking this element today, these elements, is because you couldn't live the life that you need to live to be perfect, that Christ had to die in your place. And so whenever you're ready, you come and participate in the Lord's Supper. If you're not a Christian today, then just maybe examine your heart. You know, why aren't you a believer? Okay, so let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. I pray that you'd prepare our hearts to come to the table um, in a worthy manner, that we have confessed our sin, that maybe we're like the church at, at Ephesus, and maybe we didn't even realize things in our life that, there's, that those things were sin. And maybe today you've, you've revealed something that we've done or... Um, that maybe we thought was, was okay, that was compatible with the Christian faith. Maybe you've revealed, maybe in this passage today, that there's something that is just not compatible. So I pray that you would give us the grace to confess those sins, to repent of those. So may we come to the table in a worthy manner. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Whenever you're, whenever you're ready, you come.